Greetings, and welcome to the iFormRx podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care, community, and geriatric pharmacy practice. If you are not already a member of iFormRx, it's easy to join and it's free. Just visit our website, iFormRx.org, and click on the Join or Sign In link, which is in the upper right of the navigation bar. And if you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate us on your favorite podcast app and leave a comment. We don't have a marketing budget, and we rely on word of mouth to spread the word about iFormRx, so please tell your friends and colleagues. I think it's safe to say that the sodium glucose transporter 2 or SGLT2 inhibitors and the glucagon-like peptide 1 or GLP-1 receptor agonists have revolutionized the treatment of diabetes and heart disease. And in the case of GLP-1 receptor agonists, the management of obesity as well. We keep getting more and more data about the benefits of these classes of drugs and the potential indications for their use continue to expand. The recently published STEP-HFPEF or HEF-PEF study suggests that the GLP-1 receptor agonist semaglutide might be a useful treatment in obese patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. But are the data compelling enough to change practice? Well, here today to critically examine the STEP-HEF-PEF study are Dr. Alicia Norberg-Payne, Dr. Rebecca Munger, and Dr. Jason Zupek. Dr. Norberg-Payne is a PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident and chief pharmacy resident at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. And Drs. Munger and Zupak are on faculty with the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, which is part of St. Joseph's University. Jason and Becca are ambulatory care clinical pharmacy specialists and precept students and residents in their practice. Jason is no stranger to iFormerX. He currently serves on our advisory board and has been a frequent contributor. And he's recruited our two latest contributors, Alicia and Becca, to help write this commentary and participate in today's podcast. So Alicia and Becca, it's wonderful to have you both here as first-time contributors. And Jason, welcome back. Happy to be here, Stuart. Yeah, thanks so much, Stuart, for inviting us. Great to be back, Stuart. Thanks. So Jason, I'd like to start our discussion by putting the STEP-HEF-PEF study into context. Until recently, there really hasn't been much data about the effectiveness of drug therapy for the treatment of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Indeed, comparatively speaking, relatively little attention was paid to the treatment of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction until the last decade or so. Many of the early trials demonstrated relatively weak benefits from our more traditional treatments like beta blockers and ACE inhibitors and ARBs which are recommended for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. It wasn't until the TOPCAT study, which published in 2014, which used spironolactone, that we had a treatment that appeared to have some benefit in preserved ejection fraction heart failure. But over the past decade, there's been a lot more studies And we have a lot more evidence to support our treatment decisions today. So can you give us a quick synopsis of the state of the art today? What do current treatment guidelines recommend 
for the treatment of patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. That's right, Stuart. Most recently in 2021, we were excited to see the Emperor Preserve study, which looked at the use of empaglyphosin in patients with HEFPEF, uh, which of course was covered here on iFormerX. They found that there was a lower composite outcome of cardiovascular death or hospitalization. Uh, following that were a number of other studies examining SGLT2 inhibitors, looking at reducing hospitalizations and or a composite outcome with reducing cardiovascular death. And a few studies examined some modest improvements in functional outcomes as well. We know the 2022 AHA-ACC-HFSA guideline on the management of heart failure finds SGLT2 inhibitors to be beneficial to decrease hospitalizations and cardiovascular mortality. And therefore, we should consider these agents routinely for patients with HEFPEF. Their strongest recommendation is to titrate antihypertensive medications to blood pressure targets based on current guidelines. And we know that SGLT2 inhibitors will help modestly with this as well. Next, we may consider spironolactone, ARNIs, or ARBs, in order to reduce hospitalizations. And they mention in particular for patients with an ejection fraction on the lower end, either the lower 50s or upper 40s, where their heart failure phenotype is more similar to a patient with reduced ejection fraction. We know as well that diuretics may be considered for patients who have fluid retention in order to improve their symptoms. And they recommend against the use of nitrates or phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors if they're not effective to improve function or quality of life. From a non-pharmacologic perspective, exercise training is recommended to improve functional status, exercise performance, and quality of life. But we know that this is tough to stick to, especially for patients that don't have a structured and tailored rehabilitation program. From an obesity perspective, we know that this is an independent risk factor for the development of HEFPEF. And it's a common comorbidity in patients who have HEFPEF by as much as half or three quarters of patients. Patients with HEFPEF and obesity generally have a greater symptom burden, reduced functional capacity, and impaired quality of life compared to those with HEFPEF without obesity. The 2022 heart failure guidelines identify weight loss management as a gap in the evidence needing future study. And so they don't have any recommendations for weight loss treatments. So for patients with HEFPEF, where we have limited, really efficacious medication options, who also have a comorbidity such as obesity, which is hard to treat and making things worse, we're examining the use of GLP-1s, which as we know, originally approved for type 2 diabetes, but have gained a lot of attention for their efficacy and weight loss, especially compared to some of our older medication classes. So Alicia, let, let's take a look at the step HEFPEF study. The study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in September 2023, and its official title is Semaglutide in Patients with Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction and Obesity. Now, per usual, we, we provide a link to the original study on our website, and of course, we encourage everyone to read it, but can you give us a brief synopsis of the study methods and some of the key findings. So this was a multinational, multi-site, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial that evaluated the effects of semaglutide titrated to 2.4 milligrams subcutaneously once weekly over a period of 52 weeks in patients with concomitant heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and obesity. 
This trial did aim to evaluate functional outcomes in patients with HEFPEF, or some may consider them more patient-centric outcomes. It's important to note that the trial did not evaluate outcomes regarding CV mortality or heart failure-associated hospitalizations. As far as the patient population, patients were eligible for enrollment if they had a diagnosis of HEFPEF with a left ventricular ejection fraction of at least 45%, a BMI of at least 30 kgs per meter squared, a New York Heart Association functional class of 2 through 4, and other heart failure-related findings. Patients were excluded if they had history of diabetes or change in body weight of more than 5 kilos prior to screening. Over the period of 52 weeks, around 500 patients were randomized to semaglutide or placebo. Overall, participants were pretty well matched at baseline, with majority of patients being non-Hispanic white, with a BMI of around 37 and a left ventricular ejection fraction of about 50% or higher. So, of course, you want to know about the results, so let's talk about them. The co-primary endpoints were the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, which I'll now refer to as the KCCQ score, and percentage change in body weight. When focusing on KCCQ scores, patient had an improvement in their KCCQ score of around 16, and when we think about this from a placebo-subtracted difference, this was an improvement of around 8 points. As to be expected, based on previous trial data that we're all familiar with, semaglutide did produce around a 13% weight loss in enrolled patients. Regarding secondary endpoints, patients treated with semaglutide had an estimated difference of an additional 20 meters in their six-minute walk distance and a reduction in inflammatory markers. The trial did have some exploratory endpoints, which revealed a potential reduction in NT-proBNP levels and an overall reduction in heart failure events. Of course, the exploratory outcomes were not powered, but definitely support the need for additional research. Finally, and as to be expected, the most common adverse effects of therapy with semaglutide were gastrointestinal in nature. However, it's important to note that when taking a look at the cardiac adverse events, there were significantly less cardiac adverse events in the semaglutide group as compared with placebo. So, Becca, the STEP-HEF-PEF study was randomized. It's prospective. It's blinded, placebo-controlled. So, the risk of bias is, is reasonably low. But there were only 529 participants in this study, and the primary outcome measure was the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire. Clearly, the study wasn't powered to detect a difference in hospitalizations or death, but there's a big difference in adjudicated heart failure events in this study. Only one in the semaglutide group and 12 events in the placebo group. So I have two questions. First... What is the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, and how well do these scores correlate to clinical event rates? And two, are there any potential confounders in this study that might have uh, impacted the results? Of course. The Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, or KCCQ, is a 23-item questionnaire that's self-administered by the patient. It takes patients about five minutes to complete, and they're answering questions that ask about frequency and burden of symptoms, physical and social limitations, and quality of life over a two-week recall period. This generates a score from 0 to 100, with lower scores being associated with more severe symptoms and limitations. The KCCQ has been qualified by the FDA as a clinical outcome assessment, and we know that low KCCQ scores are associated with higher rates of heart failure hospitalizations and death. 
To put that into perspective, if you break the scores up into four quadrants, a patient in the lowermost quadrant with a KCCQ score less than 25 is three times as likely to experience death or hospitalization as a patient with similar clinical characteristics in the uppermost quadrant with a KCCQ score greater than 75. When we think about the impact of a change in KCCQ scores, a change of five points is considered small but relevant. 10 points would be a moderate change and 20 points would be a large change. So when we say five points is a small but relevant change, what does that really mean? Well, a five-point increase in KCCQ score correlates to about a 10% reduction in adverse outcomes. And in this trial, they saw about an eight-point increase in KCCQ scores. When it comes to your second question on confounders, there's a couple points that are important to consider. The first is that not all of the patients were on optimal guideline-directed medical therapy. Less than 5% of patients were on an SGLT2 inhibitor, and only about a third of patients were on spironolactone. We know that both of these agents are recommended to improve outcomes in patients with HESPET. So the question then becomes, are we still going to see an additive benefit when adding on a GLP-1 agonist if patients are on this optimal guideline-directed medical therapy? The next point is that this trial did include patients with an ejection fraction between 45 to 50%. And we know that HESPEF is defined as an ejection fraction greater than 50%, though we will note that this was only less than a quarter of the patients included in the trial. Furthermore, follow-up for this trial was one year, so whether or not these benefits will continue long-term is unknown. And if a patient doesn't reach maximum weight loss or if later down the road they see a weight regain, are they still going to continue to have these benefits from the GLP-1? And then over half of the patients were female and the majority were white. So we have to consider this when thinking about the applicability of this trial to the general patient population. Well, Alicia, I'm going to come back to you. This study obviously provides us with some positive evidence that semaglutide improves heart failure symptoms and quality of life in patients with HEFPEF. But is this data compelling enough to change practice? Should we be routinely adding semaglutide to an already complex treatment regimen in patients who are obese and have HEFPEF. And given that these agents aren't cheap, would you recommend a GLP-1 receptor agonist over an SGLT2 inhibitor or over a Sucubitril valsartan? I realize there are no head-to-head trials, but it seems to me we can't just keep adding more and more drugs to patients' regimens, and we need to prioritize treatments that we think will give us the biggest benefits. Stuart, those are all great questions. We really believe that this study definitely supports the use of an additional treatment modality for those patients with HEFPEF and obesity. However, with that being said, there are definitely a lot of unknowns regarding the current place in therapy. Up until now, we have very limited treatment options with proven benefit for patients with HEFPEF, and there is most certainly a critical need to identify more therapies for these patients. It is known that there is a direct correlation between obesity and development of HEFPEF, so utilizing GLP-1s for treatment in these patients opens another possible pathway for improving their outcomes. For clinical practice decision-making, Providers should really be prioritizing the use of SGLT2 inhibitors due to the proven benefits. Additionally, controlling hypertension with ARNIs, ARBs, 
ACEs, and MRAs, especially in those patients with left ventricular ejection fractions on the lower end of the spectrum, is critically important. We can always consider cardiac exercise training and dietary modifications for our patients. The magnitude of the KCCQ score improvement, the effects of semaglutide, was better than that produced with other therapies. However, where this trial really missed its mark was with the survival and hospitalization outcomes. This is where we begin to think about patient-centered versus provider-centered outcomes. Because of this, patients should always be encouraged to participate in decision-making surrounding their care, which includes both the complexity and intensity of their regimens. If a patient is highly symptomatic, it's reasonable to consider that they may value the improvement in symptoms and quality of life rather than the survival or hospitalization benefit. Of course, in an ideal world where insurance coverage isn't a barrier, we believe that it's reasonable that SGLT2 inhibitors, ARNIs, ARBs, ACEs, and MRAs, and GLP-1s could be all used together in harmony. One question that remains is whether the benefits of these therapies could be additive in nature especially in patients with HFPEF and obesity. With all the previous information in mind, it's important to acknowledge that some patients just may not tolerate these agents or be able to be titrated to the maximum dose due to the GI adverse effects that are associated with therapy. The long-term sustainability of semaglutide and weight management is yet to be established at this point. So could these benefits be lost if a patient has eventual rebound in weight? I guess only time will tell. Well, Jason... Becca, Alicia, thanks again for joining me today for the iFormRest podcast and, and for writing the commentary about the STEP-HEFPEF study. Treatment decisions for patients with heart failure are becoming increasingly nuanced and complex. And, and now we have several classes of medications that can be used. The question is, what's the best cocktail for an individual patient? But let us know how you approach these therapeutic decisions by posting a comment on iFormRx. Just head on over to iFormRx.org and sign in. Only members of iFormRx can leave comments and use the interactive features. So sign up today. And if you are a board-certified geriatric pharmacist, you can earn board recertification and continuing education credit for listening to this podcast and reading the written commentary. We've partnered with the American Pharmacists Association to create the Literature Evaluation and Evidence-Based Practice Series, which is part of their board prep and recertification program. You can learn more by clicking on the link just below the written commentary on our website. And lastly, I want to acknowledge Eric McLaughlin at Texas Tech University for his many contributions to iFormerX over the years, writing commentaries and participating in podcasts. Eric is the chair of the Department of Pharmacy Practice and has been very involved with the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology guideline writing panels, and he's one of a small number of pharmacists who represent our unique viewpoints on the treatment of hypertension and other cardiovascular diseases during the guideline development process. And I'm so grateful that Eric is willing to share his limited time but considerable wisdom with our audience. So thank you, Eric, for all you do to advance our profession and to make clinical pharmacy services widely available to patients in all settings of care. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Music